Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. This is the podcast which talks to academics, students and staff to get to know more about their specialist areas and work. And if you're new to it, there's something here for everyone. So do take a look at the back catalogue. My guest this week is Dr. Marlon Moncrief, Senior Lecturer in the School of Education. Marlon's research primarily focuses on the application of 20th century Black British history and its cross-cultural interaction with White Britain for advancing education. He has a book coming out soon about decolonizing the history curriculum them as well and has run a successful exhibition on black british champions in cycling we're going to talk so much about a lot of this marlon thanks so much for coming on we've spoken in brief uh before in an episode um but a chance today to get into a little bit more detail thanks for inviting me richard it's good to talk with you again thanks for the invite no problem and um, so let's start before we get into the discussion let's start at the beginning can you tell us a bit about your background and, and how you arrived at this point yeah, I mean, I can start with, um, um, you know, I guess I was a primary school teacher. Um, I began my career in education as a primary school teacher in 1999 as a classroom assistant, actually, um, in Lambeth. It was a baptism of fire. It was tough. That, that, was just, that was just a year after I finished my degree at university. I did a degree in, in English literature. And, um, yeah, I taught um, as a primary school teacher for about 14 years. At, at, at the same time as um, beginning my sort of teaching career, I was almost like on the back end of doing sort of serious cycling. So I kept um, up my cycling um, at the same time as having a sort of primary school teacher career, but it wasn't as serious as it was before. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of I taught for 14 years um, um, in, in primary schools in London, in um, West Sussex, in Surrey, in Berkshire. Became a deputy head teacher. Um, I started my doctorate in education at the same time as becoming um, um, as, as becoming a deputy head teacher. Was still doing my cycling, still racing, um, and um, yeah. Once I got sort of halfway through my doctorate, I felt that I needed to be at a university to sort of finish the work and sort of maybe expand some of my research with sort of student teachers. And so, yeah, what the job came up at Brighton and. Um, I was based in West Sussex, so I thought, yes, let's go for that one. And I've been here since 2013. Cool. Um, let's focus on your research on teaching Black British history in schools. So we'll start with the fact that you have a book coming out on December the 1st, Decolonising the History Curriculum, Eurocentrism and Primary Schooling. Um, so tell us about the amount of work that's gone into that. That book started... Um, in 2005, when I was a primary school wow. teacher, okay. I mean, the, I mean, the, I mean, the idea, the conception of the idea, began in about 2005, and it was all to do with the um, social context of um, Britishness. What does Britishness mean to you? And, and this came after the sort of 77 terrorist attacks, and there was Gordon Brown talking about this, and, and there were some discourses in education um, about aiming to teach a national narrative through. Um, through history and through education. So the New Labour government had an idea for this and they appointed someone called Kiefer Jabo to sort of do um, um, a diversity report for that. That government got shifted out by the coalition government and we got a, a brand new um, curriculum, um, which was very much a tr traditional neoconservative curriculum. And um, um, so that's kind of framed the way in which um, English and history and other subjects are taught by that sort of Eurocentric, Anglo-centric perspective. So I've tracked all of this, these social and, 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 and political conversations and discourses 
and I fuse it with my own sort of sense of what it means to be British, Britishness, my own sort of um, stories of that, um, alongside the stories of my parents who were from Jamaica and my grandparents who were from Jamaica as well, who came to Britain in the 60s. And yeah, I've tried to sort of look at um, how we can teach um, more broader accounts of mass migration to Britain through the current national curriculum, which is quite restrictive compared to what the new, La- new Labour government were aiming to do mm-hmm. back in the day. So, yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of decolonising the curriculum, it fits. I mean, some people might say that that particular term is a woke word or a buzzword, but um, where you have um, documents such as national curriculum or discourses that are very narrow and very exclusive and and they can marginalise people and, and silence their lives, they, they, they need to be challenged. And mm-hmm. so decolonising de- really does ask um, um, people in, who, who, um, who, who support racism, people who support colonialism or people who support empire to look into the mirror and to um, change really so that they can allow other people space to breathe. If you want. Mm-hmm. So why do you think it is that we don't all learn more about those things, you know, why don't we learn more about Black British history, or or face or or face up to some real truths? Actually, um, and more about about Britain, about British Empire, about colonialism. Is it so important to understand why the UK is as it is today, or and and to also reflect the general UK culture as it is now? Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, there's a master there's a master narrative that's taught in in schools, really, and that master narrative of, of, of the British story is a Whig interpretation of the 17th century, which speaks to the national narrative as one of, of, of triumphal living, of, of, of celebratory narratives. Um, that doesn't really want to go into um, the more sort of um, harder and darker sides of what colonialism and what empire actually did. And again, that's you know those things that we that we learn in learn through history um, are culturally reproduced by the media, and that frames um, the way in which um, the world can be viewed. And I guess I mean, look, when I did my research with white British trainee teachers to sort of ask them a simple question: What does British history mean to do? Um, mean to you? Um, I am. Um, I, I examined um, their background influences on that particular question in terms of where they were educated, what their family backgrounds were, what kind of neighbourhood they came from. So most of, you know, the majority of the respondents were from white British backgrounds, dominant white British backgrounds. And when they spoke to that particular question, they basically regurgitated what, what, is, in the national, what is in the national curriculum and what they see on the news, which is very much a Eurocentric Anglo-centric account of history that excludes any other sort of story. Mm. So, they, so they were talking about the Tudors, the Victorians, World War One, World War Two, and speaking to white European characters, heroes mm. and heroines. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, those those discourses do shape the way in which we see history, and and they marginalise any other um, account. It's very much an anti-blackness approach to history. Yeah. So, I mean, how can we change all this then? Because um, last week we had Dr. Christian Hogsberg uh, on. He's a historian at the university who focuses mainly on on Caribbean history, actually. And he, he made the point that in Germany, for example, they do face up to the crimes of Nazism, whereas over here we sort of 
glorify the defeating of it instead and without talking about yeah. empire colonialism slavery windrush it's not it's just not there no it's it's not and i mean in black british doesn't um begin with windrush you know you know black people have been you know people of african descent have been in britain I think they, I think um, since, since the year dark, I mean, uh, they found a man in, in Somerset, didn't they? Um, uh, you know, who had, uh, was from Africa, had blue eyes and brown, you know. <laughs> um, was that Ch- Cheddar Man? I think they found Cheddar right. Man in Somerset. So, I mean, um, <laughs> I think, I think it, what it is is um, when I've done research with white training teachers or white people in examining and speaking to colonialism, empire and racism, you know, there is, there is the feeling of, the thinking is I get from there is, is a sense of shame, guilt, fear. When you talk about words such as racism or white privilege, um, sometimes they feel that they're being told off about it. And, and that's why it's hard to sort of engage in those conversations. You know, not, 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 not every white person is like that, but quite a few are. And it, it means that it's difficult for them to open up open up in, into those conversations when they, you know, some are willing to, but they, they, they find that, um, that, um, that, 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 you know, I mean, this, this, this is what I found in, in terms of the feelings that I get from them. So yeah. it's difficult to talk about those terms. I think the way that I've been trying to do it through my research is to, is to sort of look at um, how um, through mass migrations or through cross-cultural encounters in the past and in, in, in the recent um, where um, there has been any sort of um, minority ethnic group struggle involving black people, Asian people, whatever, they've been led by that particular ethnic group, but they've also had support from white people as well. So where it comes to um, looking at, for example, the, um, the riots or the uprisings of Brixton in 1981, which, which I, I, I experienced firsthand, that, I mean, that, that wasn't just black people and Asian people who were rioting, and there were white people there as well, because they were fighting against the system. You know, they, they were challenging the system in terms of the way um, oppression was occurring. And, and you know, they, they, there was a, a success in that, in that race relations acts were, were, were rewritten. So those examples of cross-cultural encounters where the, there was tension, but after that tension, there was, an, you know, there was an opportunity to sort of talk about coexistence are um, um, the ways in which I believe if everyone's got a stake in that aspect of history, then everyone can benefit from it. And you can look at more recent forms of history, such as what I've just said in terms of the rights or the uprisings of the 80s, and sort of look at that in, in, in congruency with, say, um, emancipation from slavery um, in the Caribbean, where it wasn't just, you know, you know it, it, these were black-led um, struggles um, for freedom, but those black people, those African people in the Caribbean also supported by the churches of, of um, you know, the Baptist churches um, of, of the UK as well. So again, they had white allies in that respect. So there's a, there's, there's a stake in that history for everybody in terms of, yes, we have to go through the struggle with each other, but we also come out the same end of, end of that struggle with each other to try to make the world a better place. And we, and we actually saw that as well through the Black Lives Matters process as well. It wasn't just black people walking up and down the road. It was black and, black and white people. So, so yeah, I guess that's what I'm trying to do with my book. I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to look at cross-cultural encounters um, and to sort of say, look, we're all, all involved in this. We, you know, this has been created maybe by a particular group, but in order to get out of it, we need to work with each other. 
Yeah, I, I mean, the, the timing couldn't really be better, could it, in some ways? Because we feels like, with, because of, as, as you mentioned, the Black Lives Matter movement, we're at a key point of time here where especially certain generations are sort of realizing now this is the time to make a change, isn't it? For me personally, as a, as a white man in my 30s, I, we wouldn't, I didn't learn about this sort of stuff at, at school. It just wasn't, you know, so now we're learning about it now and we're keen to learn about it now. So whilst there is that, whilst this is going on, this is the time to really push it through, isn't it? We're at a critical point. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a fantastic moment. I think, um, as I've just said, because like it wasn't it wasn't just uh, you know it was black led, but we had all people of all different color skins, sort of um, you know skin colors, look, um, looking at this issue and thinking, right, you know, this is the time to change things, and and how can we do this? And it is, it does start with education, and it, and and um, the the focus in the UK has been um, casting. Um, a spotlight upon history because in order to understand the now we need to look at the past so we can project future possibilities so so that's why history's um been you know been raised to a higher profile and um as i say everyone's got a stake in that particular story um and um, everyone's got a stake in the now everyone's got a stake in the future so we can do this together so uh, i think um with um with curriculum at university with curriculum at schools it's not just about focusing upon those documents that we use to teach, but it's about focusing on our own life experiences in terms of what we bring to curriculum in order to, 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 to bring new knowledge um, to that particular space in which we're teaching. Yeah, and you've written recently an article in The Conversation which talks about the importance of giving teachers support and guidance, particularly white teachers who, like the generations now we're talking about, may not be that well clued up about Black British history too. So if they're going to teach it, they also need to, the support of being able to deliver it yeah completely i mean it, it goes back to those words i was using in terms of like you know this notion of, of, of fear or shame or guilt and or you know or, or just not knowing where to start really you know you know having the willingness to sort of engage in it but not knowing where to start and so that word support's really important i think if if, if um you know if i've got the knowledge um i want to use my knowledge to allow young teachers young trainee teachers to sort of tap into into their own knowledge of their own cross-cultural encounters as well mm. and to challenge um the things that um you know the you know the, the pieces of information that, that they've been taught through their background experiences you know that have shaped their biases so you know what they learned at school what they learned through their parents what they learned through the, the neighborhoods to challenge those because um you know um if, um, especially if you want to become, a, you know, if, if you're doing teaching, if you want to sort of reach out to different um, sorts of students, you have to have the capacity to the capacity the capacity to to be reflective and reflexive, so that you can engage with different people in different cultures. So, so yes, it's about. I mean, the book is about is about um, offering support through reflective and reflexive practice. It, it starts with. It starts with the actual teacher themselves looking into their own um, sense of existence in terms of how they've come to learn about life themselves and their, and, and, and their interactions with people and, and how they can use those experiences to, to teach more broadly. Um, so, as I said, you know, the teacher is probably more important than the curriculum itself because the teacher has the, has the power to change that document and adapt that document according to the children that are in the classroom and according to that teacher's values and beliefs. So yes, it's about being able to sell that to teachers really. Yeah. And um, it's the same at universities, isn't it? Um, about yeah. decolonizing the curriculum. It's about, you know, 
drawing on texts from a much more diverse range, ripping up the tried and tested that's been there for years, um, modernizing it, decolonizing it. It is. And there's some fantastic work occurring at the university. I mean, I, I've been leading the, the journal Decolonizing the Curriculum Teaching Learning about race equality. And we've done, it's, 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 a, bi, it's a biannual journal. We've, we've, we've produced three issues now. And um, it's, always, it's always fun putting those issues together, sort of mm. taking examples of best practice from across the university and then to sort of showcase those, you know, in order to keep the conversation flowing. And it's, it's not just um, colleagues, staff colleagues who are writing those articles. We've got students who are writing those articles as well. We've got alumni who are writing those articles. We've got senior managers writing articles as well. So, you know, if the more we can dis- disseminate those examples of best practice, best examples of theory, um, you know, good evidence-based practice, the, the more that we can... Um, sort of push that through the system so that that will encourage people to, to, to sort of think about what they've been doing or what they could be doing so that they can um, move from you know you know if, if they need to move from that one-dimensional way of teaching a learner but sort of adapt so that they can have a more broader re- re- repertoire to what they're delivering and engaging them with their students yeah and, and important to kind of recognize as well i guess that if when, once you bought into that it's an ongoing process it never finishes it's always going to be new things that come out it's always about keeping up to date it's always about being open to those new texts we're always learning aren't we completely i think what we've done there with that particular journal is um, in the hg sector i think you know i, I would argue that brian are the first sort of producer a journal like that i mean you know, there are lots of universities now who are uh, moving forwards with the, the colonizing agenda and we can learn from those practices as well to to see how we can use those examples to filter into our own sort of action plans for the shaping of policies and i know that um i know that andrew lloyd and ruth whitaker and joe mcdonnell um are keen to sort of move forward with those plans because it's it's only going to benefit everybody in terms of um you know advancing our practices by um you know giving us more ways in which we can um, do the teaching and learning. So it's, it's very positive. I think we have to see it as a, a positive step for learning for everybody, um, for advancement for everybody. This is the moment now. And yeah, as, as I said, I think we, you know, the work that we've been doing by the Race Equality Charter Mark Group as well, it's a fantastic team. The, the amount of investment we put into that, I think we've really put Brian on the map in terms of, in terms of what we're doing. I mean, I got, I got, I got an email the other day from a colleague a school of humanities who said that one of our journals is was was being shared between the university of oxford and the university of south africa because uh-huh. they're using that as a template as a template to sort of develop their own methods on decolonizing the curriculum so that shows the impact of what, of what we've been doing at brighton mm. so yeah we should aim to build upon that really yeah absolutely um and let's talk about black british champions in cycling which has been a really successful um project and exhibition for you but first of all um just for listeners that don't know you touched upon it just now as well but this is also formed out of a passion and experience in cycling that you've got so tell us briefly about your uh, your former life as, a, an, as an elite track cyclist well i didn't i didn't begin as elite i started from scratch <laughs> like everybody else you know to work, work my way through and cycling's tough sport you know you have to you know like my, you know most things in life i guess but cycling's a real tough sport you have to it's, it's a lifestyle you know um I've, I've been in the sport for about 30 years, so you know, I've al- always had a bicycle. I had a bicycle when I was a boy, did a paper on the bicycle. I went to school, went to work before I came to university. I you know, wrote to university as well, got involved with a club, became club champion, won 
you know, you know, a handful of road races, um, then I went to track sprinting, and had more, more, um, more um, success as a track sprinter. Towards the end of it, you know, I won quite a few sort of international medals, you know, and so on. Um, you know, also as, as a teacher, um, I established quite a few schools, teams um, for cycling. Um, there's always been an issue, um, well, not an issue, but there's always been an interest in um, cycling being a white sport. I mean, I guess back in the sort of like late 90s, sort of early noughties, I used to sort of look, look at discussions that were being held on internet forums about cycling being a white only sport. Um, I guess this year, maybe the last year as well, since the Black Lives Matters discussions, you know, there's, there's a lot more people talking about um, race, you know, race and ethnicity and cycling. Um, and um, so it's, it, it, there's, almost, there's almost much more permission to talk about it in that respect. So for me, I mean, that, that discussion's always been there. I guess with the Black Champions um, Research and Exhibition, that, that work began in 2016. And that was, that, that was me um, sort of starting that research with a simple question, you know, you know, where are the Black British champions in cycling? What are they doing? Because... Again, we talk about communications and discourses. You know, Britain were in a golden age of cycling, and we got a lot of, of, of communication about the sort of white British champions, if you want, or, or the norm of uh, a British cycling champion in terms of Wiggins, Pendleton, Hoy, and so on. But being a black British man in a white cycling world, which, you know, um, I guess didn't concern me so much because it was just about the competition and doing as well as you could do, but because, it, because, um, because that, those forms of communication were, were amplified even further, and also because they were being connected more to um, um, imagery linked with empire and, and, and colonialism. So, for example, when Wiggins and Pendleton won um, their gold medals, you know, the media were dressing them up as, you know, dressed up to a Pendleton as Britannia, for example, and Wiggins was dressed, dressed up as, as the mod, which is very much, a, um, you know, an image of um, a golden age back of, of, in, in, of, of the 60s of, in Britain in that respect. So when, when, um, when they were being commodified in that respect, I thought, well, 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 well now's, now's the time to look at this to see, to see how, how this particular sport is being um, seen as um, an entitlement for white people, if you want, or an exclusive entitlement. And I knew that there were black British champions in the sport that, whose stories needed to be amplified. So that's, that, that's what the exhibition was about, really, just sort of give some education to the masters in society that, you know, we do have black champions. And, yeah, I mean, we've toured the exhibition. Um, you know, it started, it started at Brighton, obviously. We, we went to the World Championships in Harrogate last year. We did a massive exhibition at Hernhill Velodrome, where Sir Bradley Wiggins came to that um, because he's got a great connection with Russell Williams, who was his mentor. Russell Williams is one of the guys in my exhibition. And yeah, we've had, had lots of TV coverage. Um, BBC been on that twice with, um, with um, the World Championship coverage. Also with ITV cycling for the Tour de France this year. And, and quite a few publications with um you know international publications with cycling tips with velo news also being on australian radio with usa radio so yeah i mean credit to tara dean and to andrew church for um supporting the funding of this work because um it's always difficult to make a decision as to what they fund but this is really um um got brighton stamp on it so yeah. it's done really well for the university yeah, it's been incredibly popular um, and it continues to be popular as well, doesn't it? Because as you said, you started, this went on display for the first time two years ago, over two years ago. And then so here we are now with it's the, it's the, and it's still getting a lot of traction. I guess it kind of the common theme showed, didn't it? That there was this talent 
pool of black British cyclists throughout the years. And even if they won national titles and were extremely promising, for whatever reason, they weren't being given the opportunities to progress further. So they weren't going to international competitions and representing their country as much as you know they probably should have been. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, yeah, that, that was, it's, it's tough to get a pick in cycling anyway because, you know, there's only a certain amount of spaces mm. in, the, in the squad. But, you know, when, when you are the best of your peers, when you're asked to win races um, that you know is not, not, not supposed to win, but you go and win them, um, yeah, I mean, this, you know, these are, these are the patterns that have occurred for these black champs over the last 50 years. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, I think... What I found from my studies is that um, once these guys have stepped into the higher echelons of the sports and begin to work with national bodies, British Cycling or the BCF, and, and you know, it, it, it may be the decision of um, individual coaches that prevent them from um, maybe going to the Olympics. So guys like Morris Burton, Russell Williams, Trey White, even the big mixer, didn't get those opportunities. Um, but no, what, 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 I've done, what I've done with this study as well, um, which is, is uh, I'm kind of expanding it now even further to look at, um, to look at stories from across the world. So I've been speaking with um, cyclists in the USA, um, black cyclists in the USA, guys like Justin Williams, Nelson Vales, um, Reshan Mahati, um, and also some of the um, um, European cyclists with Af- African heritage, such as Gregory Bourget, um, Kevin Razor as well. I've been speaking with Kevin Razor. Um, and some of the African guys, um, N- N- Nicholas Lamini, um, because um, I've, I've, I've been able to sort of um, get myself a book contract to, with, 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 with Rafa, Blue Train, to sort of write about the history of black champions in the sport. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be sort of, sort, of, sort of using some of those oral testimonies that I've got from the black champions. Um, I've done some interviews with um, the, the the American guys, um, also females as well. I've got um, Aisha McGowan involved in this as well. So I'm basically creating an international historical um, narrative of the black experience in in cycling. So obviously, I mean, we're going to be begin with Major Taylor, who was American and world champion at the end of the um, um, 19th century. Speak to the sort of Kitty Knox. Then move on to other guys such as David um, Weller of Jamaica, who won a bronze medal in 1980, to Nelson Vowles, who won a silver in 1984. You know, just two black people who won um, medals at the Olympics. So basically, sort of bring together the entire black experience as well as I can, but fuse it also with grassroots experiences of of cycling, of of, of stepping into the white world of cycling. Sort of, yeah, you sort of sort of give an overview of what the black experience has been because. As I say, um, you know, since you know, since Black Lives Matters, um, there's been you know, there's been a lot more um, sort of discussion around it. But what we found, and, and this relates to sort of decolonising as well, is that the people involved in cycling, um, in, in some of the media, very much white people, you know, white white journalists, white commentators. So when they talk about racism in cycling, they're using very, very much a white and, and Eurocentric paradigm, whilst with me being a black British man who's been in this sport, I'm going to be bringing a black paradigm, a black um, narrative framework, a black um, um, way of analysis to that experience, which um, um, arguably may be more authentic, maybe not, but at, at, at least um, at least it's, it's, it's been given the opportunity to be spoken through 
um, a black lens rather than the norm of the white European lens. So yeah, this is an, an example of the colonizing um, the norms of knowledge creation around a particular theme. Yeah, I mean, in terms of cycling and it being looked at as a you know predominantly white sport, um, where do you, I mean, a lot of all sport, pretty much most sport has a lot of work to do when it comes to its work on anti-racism. Obviously we saw across the summer, support for the Black Lives Matter movement. We're still seeing it in sports such as football at the moment. Where is cycling on that list in terms of tackling those inequalities? Way behind. It's, it's stuck in the 1950s completely. I mean, look at the sports such as um, you know, even football, rugby, um, even cricket, you know, athletics, you know, track and field athletics have all um, been bold enough or, you know, or seems you know seem it necessary to um show some solidarity some 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 may see it as tokenistic in, in that you know but but at least um they've been able to do that i mean even formula one did it i guess you know the argument is that if lewis hamilton wasn't there they, they wouldn't have done it and they would have been just as silent as golf has been silent but um you know um cycling hasn't moved on and um i think um if if um Potentially, I don't know. You can you can you can speak about this in a hypothetical way, but you know maybe like athletics. If 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 there were some 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 African people, you know people of African descent with African Caribbean parents who were born in Britain, Black British people who were representing in um, had the opportunity to represent Britain in cycling Olympics and did well, then maybe that could have triggered um, a wave of um, multicultural representation, a bit like um, a bit like in football. Um, a bit like in cricket, which well, cricket's quite white now at the moment. Um, a, a bit like in track and field. So, so, um, so, yeah, there needs to be much more. I guess what I've been talking about is is that speaking to diversity and inclusion is isn't enough. Diversity and inclusion is going to occur because of you know because especially after the 2012 boom of cycling, where a lot of people got involved in it, it's, it's, it's going to attract different sorts of people coming into the sport. So we had the mammals, for example, coming to the sport. They weren't there before. Lots of new women coming to the sport, which is fantastic. Lots of BAME people. So there's much more diversity. But when we're speaking to the diversity of people of, uh, people of different ethnic groups, that diversity inclusion needs to be protected by anti-racist messaging. Okay, so this is what um, the national bodies have felt. That, that, you know, they haven't sort of... Um, but for, for example, in football, they have kick it out or show racism in the red card, you know, because they know that in the sport are more diverse and we, 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 we won't tolerate that. Football is for all. I think rugby are doing rugby against racism. Cycling needs something like that. And I'm working with some international colleagues. Um, I'm working with, um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking with British cycling as well. Mm. I should charge them, really, um, to sort of um, um, see what we can do to protect that increase in diversity and inclusion through more anti-racist messaging. Yeah, I, I'm in, interested that you said that actually, because I want to just sort of finish on what your experience has been with British cycling since this has come out, how much, how much conversation has there been with them? Yeah, I think, I mean, what I said on, on IT, ITV, um, the Tour de France is that I, I'm the critical friend and I, I think they see me as that. I'm not, I think I speak out when I want. Um, and I think, um, and I, I do, I do um, have conversations with them on the phone and, and, um, I don't. I think they rather me keep quiet sometimes, but you know, um, I'm just saying it as it is, really. Um, 
and I'm using their own um, messaging against them because their, mess their, their ethos is transforming Britain into a great cycling nation. You can't do that if you don't include people, if you don't, if you don't um, support, support um, people who are, who, who are the minorities. If you don't support them, um, then you can't transform Britain into a great cycling nation. So I'm, I'm just using their words against them in that respect and I'm, I'm holding them to account because not many other people are and what it comes down to with, you know, with evidence-based research and with experience. So, good, you know, good conversations. Um, what you're going to see next week from British Cycling is I've given them permission to use some of my icons that I've uh, as part of my Black Champions exhibition. So, some of the artwork, imagery that I use with um, some of the guys I interviewed, like Morris Burton and Russell Williams and so on, they're going to be using some of that for their Black History Month presentations that they're going to be doing next week. Um, I'm part of the track commission. I'm giving some advice there, and also they're, they're aiming to establish a diversity and inclusion um, um, sort of steering group as well. And I've been talking to them about that. Um, so let's see what manifests um, in that respect. It's not going to happen overnight, but again, like with decolonizing the curriculum, I mean, you know, at universities or at schools, um, it's about supporting people to step up away from um, their comfort zones to sort of challenge challenge the ways in which they've been. Um, told to see the world and to, to aim to see the world differently so that they can appreciate different people's experiences and lives. Brilliant. Yeah, I really look forward to seeing what, what comes of that. And um, and also the book, when you're bringing this a lot wider to the whole world, it's going to be really interesting to see that. So looking forward to that. Um, we were talking just before we started this podcast that you've been on a sabbatical for a while, so you've missed out on loads of this uh, remote working stuff. So you're only just back into it. Um, so coming back to the University of Brighton, um, obviously a different way of working this term. Things are, are very different. How are you finding things in the early stages? I mean, students that as well, they've proven to be very resilient and, and, and uh, getting on with, with their work um, from a remote point of view. Yeah, the students are brilliant. I mean, it's a bit like when I was a primary school teacher working with the kids, you know, um, you know that's, what, that's what you're in education for, to sort of interact, sort of grow the students, sort of give them confidence. And you're right, I mean, I, I was on sabbatical from, from January to sort of the end of March. And, and, and after that, you know, the sort of lockdown occurred. So I kind of had a head start on people because I was almost locked away in my sort of room trying to get a book done for for, mm -hmm. for ref and so yeah, it's, it's carried on I kind of came back properly um to sort of teaching about a couple of weeks ago or so and um I must admit um when it comes to doing the online lectures it's almost like as if you're speaking in soliloquy you know sometimes it's almost like yeah so sometimes um you know the students don't put their um faces on the screen and mm -hmm. um you wonder whether they're still there, whether they've switched off to, 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 to go and watch on the television, um, or whether you know they're just not there at all. But um, so I'm always asking, "Are you still there?" And they say, "Yeah, we're still here." Um, so I mean, I think they've been brilliant. You know, they really want to engage with the learning. They really want to be at Brighton. They really want to do well in their courses. And we just have to show the same amount of willingness as well. Um, towards them because we, we really want them to do their best and so yeah it's, it's a different way of working um, but the best way to sort of um, develop that relationship is to keep the communication going um, you know and, and to sort of help people along the way but no I mean um, we just try our best and they'll, they'll try their best and we'll see if we can sort of push them through to sort of get the results that they deserve and you know they can you know when they leave the university I think back in 10 years' time, I can say I was part of that generation that did it that way, mm. you know? Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. Um, we end each podcast with some questions away from uh, your work. We finish with the same questions to every guest. So first one, what advice would you give to your younger self? Be calm. <laughs> Be calmer. Okay. I, 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 between being over energetic and, and being calm but yeah be calmer be calmer yeah. just take okay. your time cool and um, <laughs> if you could pick any other subject to study at the university of brighton what would it be you know this one i think i like to do something with nature i mean uh, uh, i've always said to my daughter that i'd love to drive a tractor because you know, i live in the rural part of west Sussex. you see the tractors the big blue tractors set up. i want a tractor so maybe something with farming or agriculture because I really, I really love to sort of drive a tractor along the road and be the king of the road and the tractor so yeah maybe agriculture cool and um, pick a favorite place in sussex for us um well i think i, I chose amberley last time because it just mm. you know just love the river uh, I, I did a lot of canoeing on the river um um aaron this this summer um, it was fantastic and they've, they've never done it before I do love um, that part of Sussex. I guess um, the hills around um, around by sort of Goodwood were gorgeous as well. I do lots of cycling around there still um, with friends and my daughter mainly. So yeah, I guess yeah, I guess those sort of hills around by the Goodwood area, um, the Slindon area, which is just on my doorstep really. You know, it's beautiful. Yeah, you have an amazing place to go on for a cyclist. You a pretty amazing place to to do your hobby, don't you? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we, 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 we do a lot of cycling around. Um, we tend to go through Chichester um, and, well, we, we, done, we kind of avoid Chichester really, but we go around the back of Chichester yeah. through Lavin um, yeah. down towards Bosham as well. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Bosham's yeah. quite nice as well. But yeah, the, the hills mainly for me, um, mm-hmm. up by Goodwood Way. Nice. Um, so you, you live away from Brighton, but if you could give some visitors to Brighton and the area a tip of what to do if they came down here for a couple of days or a day or two, what would you suggest? I'll go down to the lanes. Um, I think, I think, you know, check out the lanes, but also go into the pier and, and go, go into the fairground rides mm-hmm. and have, have a thrill on those. I think that's the first one that I did when I came, when I first came down to Brighton, sort of moved down here when, when I was riding with my daughter, and you know, it was it was nerve wracking but but fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, tell us something interesting about you, which um, most people or many people may not know trying to think of this there's nothing interesting about me whatsoever that's a difficult um, one because I, I would say you saying you, you being an elite track cyclist in the past is pretty cool that's a that's a, that's a pretty interesting well, thing so how do you beat it well it's, it sounds it's a lot of hard work isn't it and you know for some people just wouldn't even think about that way of life really but no I'll tell you something that was interesting when I was a teacher um, um, which might be interesting I was trying to think um, I uh, there's a band called the Rolling Stones. You heard of the Rolling Stones? Yeah, yeah. I must have heard of Rolling Stones. <laughs> and I thought, you know, they've got the Keith Richards. Mm-hmm. Keith Richards is a guitarist. I thought, I'm going to say it anyway, but I thought his grandson, Awesome yeah. Math, in the, um, and that, that was cool. And actually jammed with, because Awesome played drums, and mm-hmm. I, I played the bass guitar. <laughs> and so I, I said to him and his mate, why don't we, uh, at, at break time, why don't we go into the music room and have a jam, you know? And, and, um, and so he said, yeah. So we, we kind of snuck in there at break time. And um, I, think, I think the music teacher followed us and was listening. We just jammed and we had a good time. So I can say that I, I've jammed with uh, the bloodline of the Rolling Stones. Amazing. That's a great story. Yeah, because he lives, because Keith Richards doesn't live too far away from you, I guess. He lives in West Sussex, doesn't he? So I think. I think he lives down by the Richards. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so finally, also, 
Yeah. Also, he's 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 got a son called Marlon as well. Oh, that's, really? That's that's, that's that's what was the uh, talking point between me and Orson's mum and his dad. That his, his dad's called Marlon as well. Cool, cool. That's a great story. Um, and if you could pick three people to host for a dinner party, past or present, so excluding family, it's a bit of a fantasy dinner party, really. Who would you pick? Oh, I'm going to go with what I said last time. Um, Jesus Christ. And mm-hmm. got a lot of questions to, to ask. Maybe, maybe, maybe you can answer, answer those. Um, definitely. Um, I could have said the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, couldn't I? No, that, that, that would be three people. But no, about that. maybe Bob Marley. Bob Marley um, would come along. Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, some of those kind of guys, really. I mean, uh, I did read a lot when I was younger, but I used to listen to a lot of music as, as well when I was young, especially music from black people, um, you know, just by my household. And I learned a lot about, we've been speaking about sort of decolonizing empire, black experience. And I, I learned a lot about it through those artists, really. You know, that, that was my education to know um, a bit about my own existence, really. So, yeah, I'd love to talk more to those kinds of people, really, at dinner. Yeah. Marlon, thanks so much for your time today. It's been fascinating listening about your research and, and best of luck with the book launch. I'm really looking forward to finding out more about the, uh, the project with um, Black Champions in Cycling and the wider project. That's going to be really good to see. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks very much, Richard. Good, good to talk to you again. Brilliant. Really appreciate it. That's it for this week's podcast, but we'll be back next week. Do take a look through the back catalogue for previous episodes as well. Thanks for listening.